On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the resignation of Julie Payette and whether it's a big deal. It seems to be, but the Governor General resigning, should we be excited about this in a, holy cow, the Governor General resigning, or, oh, the Governor General resigned. Interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about meat grown in a lab. McMaster has now done it. Would you eat meat grown in a tray? Hmm. And, and we are going to be chatting with the author of a book about Billy Van, the guy from Hilarious House of Frightenstein and so many other shows and everything else. One of the underrated guys who, not from Hamilton, but spent a lot of time here and kind of is synonymous with this city. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Several months back, a report went public about Governor General Julie Payette and her assistant at Rideau Hall. And essentially it had described a toxic workplace, a place where they berated employees and had tantrums and pulled rank. And I think the word bully was used. Well, all of that, that media report led to an independent investigation that wrapped up today. And when I say wrapped up, the the report was finished and given to the government today. Well, before it got to the government, I guess some people who had seen it, sources that media people talked to, uh, said it was damning. It was really bad. And hours later, probably two or three hours ago, Julie Payette, the governor general, and her assistant both resigned. This, um, This is unusual. This is unusual. I want to bring in Nathan Tidridge. Nathan is, he's a history teacher at Waterdown District High School and a civics teacher there, but he is also uh, a man who has written and spoken extensively about the monarchy. He's been the recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, the Diamond Jubilee Medal. Um, And uh, ironically, just a couple months ago was uh, the winner of the Governor Governor General's History Award. Uh, Nathan joins us now. Nathan, how are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. I, when I reached out to you this afternoon to ask you to come on and you hadn't yet heard that she had resigned and I mentioned it to you, you sounded shocked. Is this story shocking? Yeah. Um, I was actually just finishing a, a, a staff meeting at the school. And so I hadn't, uh, hadn't checked my phone yet. And, uh, it, it's, it's unprecedented for, for Canada, for something like this to happen for a governor general to resign like this. So it's, a uh, it's it's certainly one for the history books, and um, I didn't uh, I didn't expect that something like this would happen, especially something so sudden like this to happen. She is, um, I mean, her job description. She's the Queen's representative in Canada. Yeah. So, w- explain the difference. I mean, one would say then, well, if she represents the Queen, this is kind of like the Queen resigning in some sense. That's not what this is, obviously. No. But but how significant is? Not even just that it's Julie Payette, who's a very famous person, a successful astronaut, that this role, that the person in this role has to step down. How significant is that? It, it's, it's pretty significant, and I think it, it speaks to two, to two things. One is the real importance of a role like this, the, the need for a country to have someone or to have a position that is dedicated to, to ceremony, to interacting with the public, to performing democratic duties. Um, representing really the very best in this country, representing treaty relationships, and then uh, and that it, it, it's a job that's so important, and this goes into the second point, that the person who inhabits that role uh, needs to be properly vetted. And so if you're not a match for that role, we can see the consequences of that in, in, in something like this. 
Well, yeah, and we, and you know, we know that, and I got a lot of things I want to get to, but we know yep. that there are going to be people now who say, "Look, this may be the opportunity." Then we've had some controversy. Now let's just get rid of the role. We don't really need it. What would you say? Why do we need to have a governor general in this country? Well, the governor general uh, operates on a bunch of different levels. Number one, they represent the queen. Uh, they represent the crown in the country, and, and the crown underpins our whole constitution, our whole federation, and, and all of the treaty relationships. So in order to, to get rid of the crown and to, uh, to abolish the monarchy would require a, a total constitutional rewrite. We would have to, we'd have to essentially redesign Canada from the bottom up. And uh, I don't know if there's any Canadian politician that would ever want to do something like that, nor is there really an appetite for that, I think, for the Canadian public to endure something like that. So that's from a, a constitutional point of view. Uh, from a ceremonial point of view, this is the person that bestows honors, that represents the country, that interacts uh, uh, with Indigenous people and treaty relationships, that uh, is supposed to, to be the very best of the, uh, of the country uh, and as kind of a stabilizing force. And to tinker with something like that, particularly right now, is not really something I think that... Uh, that many people would want to do. And when you talk about the ceremony and everything, absolutely. But, yep. you know, there, there has been this sense, aren't governor generals just by definition supposed to be, you know, boring, you know, be part of the furniture, do a few public appearances, hand out the orders of Canada, prorogue government every once in a while, that kind of thing. We don't need you to be super exciting. Just do what you need to do. Sure. I think constitutionally, yes. There's a famous thing where they describe the, the governor general as a constitutional fire extinguisher. So bright and colorful, you know where they are, they, all the ceremony that attends them. But for the most part, they don't seem to do much constitutionally until there's an emergency. Then they become very, very important because uh, they're the only ones that can put out those constitutional fires. So having someone that is constitutionally boring, sure, that's something that you need. But you also need someone that can interact with, you know, the thousands and thousands of people that you uh, encounter on a data or on a yearly basis. An example would be our Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowswell. She has um, constitutional responsibilities that she does that are pretty benign, but she has spent this entire time during COVID-19 meeting with hundreds and hundreds of people, just touching base with them, providing kind of a, a, a continuity and, and something to unite, you know, a, tell everyone that it calmed them and, and show them that society is, is still going on and we're, they're part of something and they're important. That's something that you can't, it's, it's hard to define, but it's very, very important to uh, a society like Canada. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, Nathan, we're talking about, you know, who makes up, who's a good governor general and, and should you just be boring or should you not be, Lately, it seems that we've had a number of governors general who have found themselves in a little bit of hot water and some controversy. We had Adrian Clarkson who got in trouble because of her spending, we were told. And Mikhail Jean um, was alleged to have been sympathetic to Quebec separatists and some other things. And now this one, it makes me wonder, though, and they were all celebrities before they came into this. It makes me wonder if this is a role better served to someone who's personable, who's hardworking, but who maybe is willing to hold this post while also somehow flying under the radar at the same time? 
Yeah, there there was actually uh, a system that was put in place by the previous government government by the the Harper government, a vice regal advisory committee, and uh, it was uh, nonpartisan and it, it vetted uh, different candidates for vice regal positions and took into consideration all the different things that make for a very good uh, uh, vice regal, lieutenant governor, governor general. Uh, it was that committee that gave us David Johnson, who. Uh, by most accounts, was uh, as an outstanding uh, governor general. He, he understood the Constitution. Uh, the job was that he didn't make the job really about himself. Uh, the, he, the job came first, um, uh, and he was very supportive of that. Uh, it gave us Elizabeth Dowdswell, our current lieutenant governor, as well as a number of uh, vice regals around the country. It was unfortunately discontinued by this government, uh, and so appointments are just, they're made... Um, uh, on, on really the whim of the Prime Minister's office at, at this stage. And so that question, or any questions around that, land at the feet of the current Prime Minister. Where, you well, know, and, where, and how yet, are people being chosen? And we've heard r- reports coming out that there were red flags ahead of time that people say that in Payette's past uh, at the Montreal Science Centre, this kind of thing had happened before. And there were other, some other personal things that were out there. I mean, it, it does make you wonder whether she should have been vetted better. And th- that's something I'm quite certain is going to be argued about over the next number of days for certain. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, to me, it highlights that th- this position is not really being taken seriously uh, by the government. This is an important position. It is the representative of the head of state, uh, the, the, the top position in the country. And uh, with it comes a lot of responsibility, particularly interacting with the public. Um, and if your own staff uh, is not feeling safe, then, uh, you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's not good. It, it, it should be beyond that. It, it, um, just a few years ago, that staff was considered one of, one of the best places to work in Ottawa. Mm. Um, and, and that should be expected of the Queen's representative. That's what should, yeah, be, it sh- should be happening. The role should, the role should not just be a shiny object. It's not just it, someone exactly. you, you pick out to be, Hey, this is a cool person that we're affiliated with. It's got to be someone who has some the ability to do it. Now, the prime minister, as you pointed out, he didn't, well, he didn't appoint her because the queen ultimately has to do that, but he can recommend her to the queen who does it. But could yep. the prime minister have, if this report had come out and she had refused to step down, could the prime minister have fired her? Well, you're right. The queen does appoint the governor general, but it is the prime minister that recommends the candidate to the queen. The queen wouldn't, wouldn't put someone into that position on her own independently. Um, it would be seen as interfering in Canadian sovereignty. So, so the way that it works is the governor general presents the candidate. Similarly, to remove um, the governor general, it would, it would have to be advice from the prime minister. So the prime minister would advise the queen to remove the governor general. And, and he could have done that. Um, but uh, it looks like um, uh, Madame Payette decided to uh, to leave before something like that could happen. And is that what typically happens? And, and certainly not under the same circumstances, but when a term is up, is the term just up and so they're done? Or does the prime minister have to, when one of them is done, go to the queen and say, we'd like you now to, with a stroke of the pen, say person X is no longer governor general, or does it just end? Yeah, there's no specified term. It's at the queen's pleasure. So a governor general can be in as long as, as, as they are. Um, but yes, a, a, um, 
a prime minister would offer uh, a candidate to the Queen. There is undoubtedly conversations between Buckingham Palace and the Prime Minister's office uh, over candidates. Like, we would assume that. We would hope that. Um, and yeah, so that's what would that's what will happen within the next little while, I would imagine. I only hope, though, that the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office reconstitute those vice regal advisory committees so that something like this doesn't happen again. Because it's unfortunate for Madame Payette as well. I mean, by all accounts, she was a very successful astronaut um, and had a sterling career, uh, you know, in her area. But that doesn't necessarily translate into a good governor general. It's it, it's a different skill set that's required. And so it's unfortunate that she was kind of put into that position. I mean, granted, she probably agreed to or she definitely agreed to it. But uh, it's still it, if there is a proper vetting process, we wouldn't have to have this conversation right now. Nathan Tidridge, always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Uh, just one little note. There is a statement out from Julie Payette, from the Governor-General, with her resignation. Uh, take a listen to one line. It's a very long statement. Just take a listen to one line. Tell me who this sounds like. We all experience things differently, but we should always strive to do better. Sound? Does that ring any bells? Ring any bells? How about when the Prime Minister was accused of groping a reporter? People experience things differently. This is I, We're going to talk about this tomorrow on the show. I guess this is the new, well, it didn't really happen, but you kind of thought it did. So come on. That, someone, this, I don't know if it's the same speechwriter, but somebody is coming up with, a, with the same line. Stood out right away when we read that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to ask you a question if you are one of the people out there who eats meat. I mean, I know there's vegetarians and vegans, and right now you're saying, Bleh. okay, but if you're one of the ones who still eats meat, I have a question for you. Would you eat meat grown in a tray in a lab, not butchered and laid in a tray and then served, grown there from cells on a sheet? Well, my next guest has done that, grown it. I don't know about the eating part yet. We'll find out. Uh, he and another researcher at McMaster have created edible meat in a laboratory. It's a fascinating story because of the considerations of where this could go if it's if it really works and if it's something that people would latch onto. Question is, are people going to latch onto it? Dr. Ravi Selveganopathy is a biomedical engineer at McMaster. He joins us now. Dr. Selveganopathy, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, Scott, for having me on the show. Uh, I, I must say, my very first thought when I saw this, and, and it's, I, I, I hope it's not too insulting, but my very first thought was, this has a slightly Dr. Frankenstein kind of sound to it. Um, it's, it's when you tell people that you are making meat in a lab, it, it, it does sound unusual. Do you get odd reactions? Yeah, people, people are surprised. Uh, but that is the, the 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 technology that we have been developing is uh, very similar to what is happening in uh, in nature. So we are using animal cells in order to grow meat-like structures or tissue-like structures. And it, the field has a long history um, in an area called tissue engineering, where um, tissue-like structures are grown for biomedical purposes, for implantation, for instance, for tissue regeneration and, and other things. The only difference here is that instead of human tissues, we're doing animal tissues uh, for uh, consumption rather than medical purposes. 
Right. And we've seen stories before. I think most people listening have seen or heard of a story. I, I, I saw one one time where someone had they, a lab had grown a human ear or a human organ for mm-hmm. for a reattachment or transplant. It's, it's, it's obviously different, but similar principle than you're saying. Absolutely. So it's very similar principle. Uh, there are some unique aspects uh, or uh, simpler aspects uh, with meat production as compared to actually doing it for uh, human implantation, for instance. Uh, so so uh, human uh, tissue that is going to be implanted into humans has to be kept alive. Meat, on the other hand, can be dead. Okay, l- let's get into this a little because I find how you got here um, fascinating. Did, did you set out to cultivate, to grow meat or like so many other scientific discoveries that have happened over the years, was this an accident while you were trying to do something else and all of a sudden you stumbled on this and said, hey, look what we just did. Well, it, it was a gradual process of realization that we could have something here. So our traditional area has been working in the area of tissue engineering, trying to generate tissue-like structures, uh, either for regenerative medicine, which is uh, to, to replace some of the existing tissues in the body, or for drug discovery, where uh, human tissues would be useful to test whether new drugs are safe to use or not. And that is our traditional interest. Uh, in doing so, we developed a technology where we could um, culture both muscle cells and fat cells together. And that was a new technology, and we were using it uh, in order to understand how muscle behaves um, and, uh, and to understand the process of aging. Uh, and then along the time, there was this news item and articles uh, relating to whether cultivated meat was possible. And we thought that, well, this technology could very well have an application there and could come to the market more quickly in the meat application rather than in a human biomedical application where the FDA regulations and so on uh, take a very long time. All right. Now, you understand none of us have any idea about this and none of us are biomechanical engineers or biomedical engineers. So, um, you know, we could ask you to explain how you cultivate meat in a lab and we could probably talk to us for about seven hours or 10 hours to get through it. But in the simplest possible terms for people like us, how does one go about making meat that is edible in a lab? So, so we use uh, processes that nature has uh, perfected, right? So we start with cells uh, that are present in uh, animals, uh, as well as human muscles, for instance, uh, which are called progenitor cells. So these are cells that uh, actually can divide and grow and create new muscles. And that is what happens when we exercise, right? So when we exercise, uh, there, are, there is a stimulus that is provided that uh, indicate that new muscles have to be grown, and these cells are the origins of that. Um, and so these cells, when extracted from animals like, say, chicken or, or uh, a cow or a pig, um, can be grown uh, by providing appropriate growth media, and you can increase the number of cells very quickly. What we do then um, is take those cells and grow them into thin sheets. Um, and these sheets are almost uh, uh, like, for example, a single sheet of paper, for instance. Um, they are quite flexible, and we have a new technique to actually uh, remove them as individual sheets. And in order to grow thicker layers of meat, what we do is just stack these sheets one on top of each other, very similar to if you were to go to Staples and buy a bunch of um, printer paper. 
you would get like a stack of thousand of them. And yeah, yeah. Three-dimensional and solid. So it's exactly the same thing. And we have a technology to actually connect and merge these layers uh, with each other. What we are also developing is technologies where we could pattern fat and muscle cells in precise locations so that we can create these kinds of marbling effects and, and so on. Um, and by doing that, by assembling these cells and allowing the cells to actually produce the fat with which they produce in, uh, in normal tissue, as well as connect with each other, just like muscle fibers would connect in, in normal tissue, by making them do what they naturally do, we can create these kinds of uh, tissues in the, in the lab. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, just to be clear before we move on here, um, because when people hear stuff in a lab, the the I think the immediate reaction is, oh, it's somehow not real or it's it's this is what you've done is you've taken cells and created meat. It is real meat. It's not some fake meat. It's it is meat. It's just done a different way. Exactly. So it is it is it is meat coming from animal cells. Uh, so we have animal muscle cells, animal fat cells uh, that we combine. And the tissue that these cells are producing is uh, in a form very similar to what would happen in nature. It's just not inside the body. You're right. So it's not made of soy or other chemicals or something. It is meat. It just has a different appearance. Now, when you got the first batch done, I don't know if batch is the right word. <laughs> we'll call it first batch. When you got the first, what did, did it look? Does it look like meat? Does it feel like meat? Does it taste like meat? Yeah, so so it, it does look like meat. Uh, the consistency of it is, is a little bit softer than um, what meat would. Uh, one, the, my my student actually took some of it and and fried it in oil, and it uh, it uh, holds up like what meat would. Um, what we had published in the paper was work which we did some time ago, and that was on cells grown from uh, mouse mouse cells. Uh, since then, what we have done is we have obtained muscle cells from rabbit, and we are now in the process of growing uh, rabbit meat. And um, and and those uh, he has tasted it, and they appear to be similar to uh, normal meat. You didn't try the mouse meat. No, we didn't. <laughs> that is specially <laughs> kept for cats. <laughs> probably for the best now can this it sounds the process and it may not be but the process sounds rather meticulous and rather delicate in in a in a world where this could catch on could something like this be done in mass volume to be able to service grocery stores or, or is it only possible in small quantities the the way that we've designed the process is with the view of manufacturing at scale uh, so the process, uh, the, the main problem that we have actually overcome is that these typically when you grow thing, cells in, in, in a lab, you can grow it in two dimensions in the form of sheets very easily. Uh, the problem with growing thick slabs of any tissue is that you need to have like this blood supply network, which perfuses through our entire body and provides the cells in each and every location with the nutrients and the oxygen for them to survive. This has been the challenge that the whole field has had. But with our layer by layer assembly process where we culture a lot of individual two-dimensional layers and then stack them up one on top of each other to get any thickness that we want, we have created a process which 
we can grow things in parallel and assemble them very very quickly so it's a scalable process mm. and we and it's a modular process so we think that from a manufacturing perspective it should be easy to scale up theoretically would it be cheaper or more expensive or the same as meat from the traditional way we get it now currently it is it is definitely going to be more expensive but as with any technology what we expect is that the cost of production is going to go down as the systems of production become more understood and refined and uh, and grow in scale so that's that's our expectation but the nice uh, additional feature that this kind of a meat is going to provide us is with the ability to tune the content of what goes into the meat itself so for instance by putting or initially seeding different amounts of muscle and fat cells we can tune the fat content and that is one of the things that we have shown in this paper is that we can go from a composition that is almost like lean meat to something which is a very fat rich meat just by seeding the right amounts of fat and muscle cells and letting the cells take care of the the formation of the tissue themselves um so that is that is one thing where we could now like milk say that we can have a skim milk or a 1% milk or a 2% milk or whole milk we could have similar kind of things for um for uh, for meat uh, wow. in addition what we could also do is introduce uh, say for example plant fiber and now when you eat meat not only do you get the taste and texture of the meat and the content associated with it but you also get fiber which is which is fantastic from a health perspective so that kind of tunability is very useful mm. for some segments of the market theoretically then could you create a wagyu beef that right now would cost a fortune for people to buy that could be much much cheaper yeah if if we get the right cell type we should be able to do that and 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 we are also developing new technologies where we could exercise the meat that we are growing in the uh in the lab and so we can have different amounts of exercise uh that is incorporated into uh, into the meat by providing appropriate stimulus so interesting we we got to run but just one more thing um, i i do think there is as i said off the top i think there is some little bit of a psychological barrier to the idea behind this for some people do you overcome that simply by saying taste it and you'll see that it's fine and then that psychological barrier is gone i think yes exposure uh, to to this kind of a thing will definitely improve the acceptability of this so it is certainly going to start as with any new technology with uh, some early adopters and depending on what their opinion is and their preferences it is going to spread to a broader population but where it does address is this issue this global issue where uh, the amount of meat consumption is going to continuously increase the population is increasing the uh, affluence of uh, the po- overall population is also increasing and so this increasing trend is taking up a lot of resources in terms of land and water which is unsustainable and a technology like this has uh, potential to alleviate at least some of this uh, issue uh, for a segment of the market fascinating fascinating stuff that uh, that you've done and that you've created uh, dr ravi selvanopathy let me say that again dr ravi selvanopathy from veganopathy from mcmaster university i'll get it right uh, i really appreciate the time today thanks so much it's really really interesting thanks for having me on the show thanks you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml billy van who he was as i say he was a 
He wasn't a Hamiltonian by birth. He wasn't a Hamiltonian living here all the time, but he was a guy who is in a lot of ways kind of synonymous with this city because of the work that he did at CHCH and with Hilarious House of Fright and Sign and Party Game and other things. And there is a new book about him. There is a new book that's written. It is called Who's the Man? Billy Van. And this is no brochure, this book. 324 pages about the life of Billy Van. The co-author who has written this with Greg Oliver, co-author who joins us now from Hamilton, Stacy Case. Stacy, how are you tonight? Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are things? Uh, really good. Thanks. Really good. We're uh, so thrilled to have this book finally done. Did you know it took uh, 12 years of planning to get this thing finally finally finished? I've never written a book, Stacy, and uh, all I can imagine, I mean, I know I write for the paper, so I know what writing is all about, but the, sure. I, the organization, the researching, and then coming up with 324 pages, I can believe it. I can believe that. It's unbelievable. And it, the, the, amount of, the amount of time and the amount of love and the amount of passion that's gone into um, the work and getting this book done, and then also uh, feeding off of the energy of other people, like people wanted this book to be written. Mm. Everybody well, I wanna... we talked to was like, oh my gosh, finally somebody wants to know about Billy Van. Yeah, and I believe that because again, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of touchstones for people, and they may not know his whole career, they may not know a whole yes. huge chunk of his career, but there are things here or there where for a lot of people of a certain vintage where he pops up and you go, oh yeah, that guy. Uh, let me ask you this though. For let, let's start with Hilarious House of Frightenstein for a second, because that may be for a lot of people to think that he's the thing that he's best known for, um, for all of its charms and many people who grew up around here, or even just grew up when that was on the air would describe it as kind of charming. It's an incredibly, incredibly weird show. And that had to come from somewhere. Was Billy Van a weird dude? <laughs> he must, you know what, for him to pull off all the characters of, uh, on Frankenstein. You know, uh, was he a weird dude? I don't know if that's the best descriptor for Billy Van. Uh, from all the research that I've done, uh, could he be weird? Yes, he could be very weird in his characters <laughs> he portrayed. Um, I don't consider him to have been a weird person outside of showbiz. I know he, um, you know, there's his ex-wives and children and things like that that aren't mentioned in his own autobiography that he wrote. Um, but other than that, you know, I wouldn't call anything that he really did weird. It's the characters that he played that were so weird. So there was something he could tap into though. There was, there was a part of himself that he could tap into that was eccentric because there's really eccentricity in a lot of those characters. And you break some of the characters down that he's playing like Griselda, he's admitted is basically Julia Child. From back then. <laughs> I'm sure Julia Child would be delighted to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? And then other characters, you know, obviously Wolfman Jack is based on this character. Wanna Clyde Batty, the, uh, the Australian, is based on this character. A lot of these uh, voices that he, w- because he did so many uh, voiceovers for radio ads all through the 60s, he had developed a lot of these voices already. So the, the, he didn't just magically uh, um, appear with Dr. Pet Pet's voice. He had already worked on these voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just had to apply it, to, just had to find the character to stick it with and, and make exactly. it click. I, I still don't know. I still don't know if Hilarious House of Frightenstein, and I've seen you know episodes of it much more recently in the last year or so. I still don't know if it was supposed to make kids laugh or give them nightmares. 
I have no idea. I, I, I grew up in Niagara in the lake and very luckily on the farm that I grew up on, we had an antenna and thank gosh, we got CHTV. So I grew up with Frightenstein just like everybody else did. And I think back to how I thought about it when I was a kid and then I watch it now. And just like you, I try and put the two together. How could this crazy kids horror TV show that was so crazy in my youth uh, be so wild now, and it's still just as topical. Fifty years later, this is the fiftieth anniversary of of the hilarious House of Frankenstein this year. Huh? He was Billy Van. So, and and for those who the few who don't know, Billy Van was the guy. He he did most of the characters on that show. There were other people who played uh, other roles, but he was the guy. I think he had eight or nine characters on that That's show. It. He was a singer by trade, right? I mean, ba- ba- you go way back. He was a guy who started or early on was a singer. Yeah, correct. Well, his family came from vaudeville. So he, had, he, he grew up with a singing family. And he, like at one point, um, him and his brothers had the Billy Van Four. Uh, uh, he has records out. His, uh, one of his bands toured England. Um, I, as a collector, I have three of his records. Um, uh, the Billy Van Singers actually do the Spider-Man uh, cartoon theme song that many right. people they, don't realize. Yeah, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, that one. Yeah, that's right. Billy Van from Hilarious House of Fright Song. Yeah, well, I, I, I had forgotten that. The Billy Van Singers. His wife is singing and uh, somebody else that he starred with. That was that was his uh, singing group that he had put together, but he wasn't actually singing in that one. But it oh, is the okay. Billy Van Singers. He did a lot of other things, though, as he came along. And again, we know him from a few things, but if you look at his bio, he he kind of was everywhere for a while. I have one of the wildest things. When I was running the Billy Van Museum here in Hamilton that unfortunately had to close because of um, space restrictions and COVID, one of the free free things that I would give to fans was something that uh, his daughter had given me, which I just found fascinating. And it was Billy Van's... um, personal resume from 1975 when he had just moved back to Toronto and it was a resume just a regular just like you or I would write a resume except it's Billy Vance and it was so cool to see all the stuff that he had done which was give me so give me a few things that he had done uh, along the way all of the General Motors um whenever you would go when if you were a General Motors employee like my mother and father were in St. Catharines and you would be called into an assembly to watch a safety film about using, uh, if you were worked on the caliper line, you'd have to uh, watch a safety film about, film about calipers at, for GM. Billy Van was the spokesman, the, the spokesman for GM in all of their um, safety films that he did for like seven years. I didn't know that until I read his resume. I'm like, wow. And he did, uh, he did a million Colt 45 beer commercials, right? Yep. People don't realize you go down a rat. You can go down a Billy Van rabbit hole on YouTube. So simple, just by typing out Billy Van, and just watch what he did, and you'll see just a world of Canadian television that everybody's forgotten about. But yet we all remember these shows, and then there's this common theme: this guy. <laughs> you either know his voice through Eureka, or you know him as the robot from. Uh, Bits and Bites, all these different shows that he did, or Frankenstein for an older generation, and then a newer generation because it's back on television now. It's 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 quite a career that he had. You are uh, a self-acknowledged super fan. Are, are there a lot of you out there? 
Uh, there is. Um, uh, a lot of it is based around Frankenstein. Uh, I'm, I, I've become a bigger fan than that of trying to understand and pay homage to this guy that I'm really grateful to. Like, you'll talk to many fans that will uh, all agree on the same thing, that we all have this one thing in common. And we all felt as kids that we all watched the show alone. I didn't know in school that anybody was watching Frankenstein. I didn't know what I was watching. I, I thought it was for me. I didn't know any better. I was only six. Mm -hmm. So to find all these people as adults now, there's fan clubs on Facebook. There's uh, the Hilarious House of Frankenstein fan club. Like we have a Facebook group called the Billy Van Museum and Book, and we have 1,200 members. The the fan club has. 3,500 members. Super Hippie's still alive. He owns the show. Uh, he's allowing fans to do licensed reproductions. Uh, so there's T-shirts. There's all this uh, stuff for sale now that the, uh, the fans are keeping the show alive. Yeah, so, so super. Uh, Mitch Markovich, Mick Markowitz was on the show a little while back, and uh, yeah, so it, I mean, it's it is around. It's just that today i i wonder again i i say the characters and a lot of people of a certain age especially are familiar but i'm not sure he ever really got his due i don't know if you went down to the states now into the entertainment industry and said his name i'm not sure there is going to be that immediate recognition of the name which which is kind of unfortunate because i mean he no, certainly did enough that you would expect he should get that recognition it's true the star system has never, the star system didn't really come into play in Canada until the 80s with Brian Adams, Shania Twain, like where people uh, realized that Canada has superstars. In the 70s and the 60s, Canada hadn't developed that yet because we're too soft spoken and we don't want to act like Americans. So we, we, we play it cool. So Billy did that too. He was always a very humble guy. He never went and uh, chase things down he never uh, he was happy being what he like his own autobiography that he wrote was called second banana so he was he even put himself it's an endearing term in show business but to somebody outside of show business calling yourself second banana when you're the star of the show that warped all of us it's like whoa come on man he never he he never got a star on Canada's Walk of Fame, did he? And that's the next step. Once everybody learns about Billy Van and his importance to Canadian culture in general through pop culture for the last 50 years, and it's still going on right now because he's on television, as I'm speaking right now, a parent is showing their child the hilarious House of Frankenstein on Crave TV. You know, and it's this guy and it's like the show's making money. The family isn't. He's not getting anything from it. We got to do something as fans before anybody forgets about this guy. So why has he been overlooked? Star on Canada's Walk of Fame. Why do you think he's been overlooked then? Because I mean, look, I, I don't want to take anything away from any of the people who are on Canada's Walk of Fame. Yeah. Uh, they all deserve to be there. But some of them, if you look at their resume, is not as extensive as his. I mean, yeah. it's not that it's not that they shouldn't be there. It's that, well, how did he get left behind? He doesn't have that one hit. All he has is Frankenstein and the Canadian, uh, like that was made for syndication. So that was meant to be sold around the world to America and stuff like that, which actually did, it, it did. It got, show, it got sold to the States, uh, a half hour uh, condensed version with a laugh track which is really weird to think of. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, it helps you figure out what the show is supposed to be about, I suppose, if you're really new to it. But um, um, with him and and Canada's Walk of Fame, like I was trying this at the Frankenstein Fest I did in Toronto in 2006, get get, uh, the ball rolling for something moving towards recognition for Billy Van on Canada's Walk of Fame. Like, CBC, how hard would it be? Okay, you know what? I'm going to work on something for 12 years and publish a book. And then we're going to go out and we're going to sell it and we're going to tell everyone we know about Billy Van. And then we're going to start an email campaign (laughs) and he's going to get his star on Canada's Walk of Fame. I fully believe it. Let's go back to um, him as a person for a little bit. I, I started by asking, what did I say? Weird. I, I asked if he was a bit of a weird guy. Uh, all right. We, we were saying he, he wasn't. That said, he did have, I think, five marriages. There's got to be some quirks or some things within his personality. I don't know if you can have five marriages without he, having some had, things going had, on there. He had darkness. Which means uh, what in your mind? Uh, say, say that again. And when you say that, what do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> um, everybody in the world has light and dark. And there was, like, we even name chapters in the book, Good Billy and Bad Billy. You know, it could, because there were times where he was good and there were times where he he wasn't. It's just as simple as that. He's a human being. And that's what we were trying to get a, to show people is here's a real man. This was his life. And it's Did- important. And it's important for us to remember him. And, you know, when at his funeral, all of his ex-wives went and none of them had a bad word to say about him. They all chit-chatted with each other and talked to each other. Did any you know, of the wives help you with the book? All of them did. There's quotes from everyone. Hmm. Like, wow. like everybody, the only one that didn't was, was his last partner, Susan. Um, she, she just neglected to take, she just didn't want to take part in it, which is fair. Um, she was, she was more a fan, I'm sure of Billy's book because of all of the stuff that we uncovered in our book. Well, what were the differences? All right. So he wrote this autobiography and you know what, when you write an autobiography, you get to tell your story the way you want it to be told and you can put yeah. stuff in that you think makes you look good, or you can leave stuff out that you may be concerned doesn't. W- right. Where are some of the differences between what you've written and what he wrote about himself? Oh, it's, it's night and day. Um, so his book is about, his, uh, his book is about, uh, it's written in 1997, uh, 98, and it's written about it from a perspective of an elder statesman speaking to a young person that wants to break into the business. So that's his approach. Okay. And then he uses his own life to illustrate the pitfalls and perils of show business. Now we, we have quotes from his book in our book. Um, but when I did my first read of it all those years ago, I was like, okay, well that certainly didn't tell me anything. Like it didn't tell me anything. It didn't like, this is 2021. It's not 1997. Mm-hmm. We expect more from our television and more from our movies and more from more. I, I'd like to know more, you know? 
so that's what we did. We had to figure it, we had to find it ourselves. It, it took a long time. Tell me, uh, and we only have a couple seconds, a couple minutes left here, but, yeah. um, tell me your, you, you said there's good Billy Van and bad Billy Van. Tell me your good Billy Van story that you think best reflects him and your bad Billy Van story that you think best reflects him. Uh, my good story. Is, well, my bad, I'll, I'll do my bad story first. Um, he had a child with a woman in Florida and then didn't see the child for nine or nine months to a year. That, Does he have contact? Did he have contact prior? Like, did he, did he reconcile or is that still sort of hanging out there? They were married. This was his wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, this, this was his wife. He was pursuing his career. Uh, she had a child and he didn't see the child for nine months to a year. Okay. So, and that's what happened. No, that's rough. What about the good side? What about the good Billy the Van good story? The good side is all of the wonderful things Billy did throughout his life. He volunteered. He raised money for, um, I, I don't, I've got something right here that his daughter let me use for the museum. It's, uh, it's a, like I have thank you letters from different kinsmen groups and things like that, where he would do a, a free appearances to, to raise funds for people. Uh, he was a firm believer in war amputees and donating money to them and raising funds for people. So he was, he, and like his daughter, Tracy, you can't get enough of him and uh, couldn't get enough of him growing up, you know, but she missed him as well because he was an absent, he was an absent father that was working all the time. So yeah, it is, um, you can learn it, all it is, it in our book. He is a complicated guy. He's an interesting guy. And he's a guy that, as I say, many, many, many people over the years have watched and, uh, and remember from many of his shows. Uh, Stacy Case has been joining us. He is co-author of the book along with Greg Oliver. It is called, Who's the Man? Billy Van. Billy Van. And where can people buy said book? You can go to oliverbooks.ca and just click on the Billy Van page. There you go. Stacy Case, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.